Last week in our Introduce You to the Theme, the two words, the theme, come from the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, where the Bible says, the thing, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Last week I shared with you that you have an enemy who harasses you daily with temptations, which by that I mean solicitations to do the wrong thing. Now those daily harassments are something that we wrestle with, but I am convinced that in all of our lives, yours and mine both, no matter how strong you are, how gifted you are, maybe especially depending upon how strong, how gifted you are, I think Satan has got a strategy to blow up your life. I've watched it happen with wonderful guys and gals. And last week we asked the question, do only horrible people do horrible things? And we learned the answer to that question is no. There are a lot of good people who do horrible things. And I think the way they do horrible things is they start out one step in the wrong direction and then another step after that. And before they realize it, they're so far away from who they really are. And maybe one of the reasons why horrible people do horrible things is in the throes of dealing with that foolish decision, they say to themselves, I'm not a horrible person. And if that's the case, we certainly met somebody last week who did a horrible thing, but he certainly could have said, I'm not a horrible person. His name was David. He's the guy who killed Goliath. He's the guy who wrote a lot of the Psalms. And when Jesus came into our world, Jesus introduced himself as the son of David. So he's definitely not a horrible guy. But wow, he did something really horrible. We learned last week that in middle age, David bored on top of his palace, walking around on his rooftop, spied his next door neighbor Bathsheba naked, taking a bath. And instead of just seeing her and turning to look the other direction, David looked and he looked and he looked. And then he said, I want her. And he brought Bathsheba into his house and they had sex. I don't know how many times they had sex. I'm guessing more than once. But in any event, they had sex. And that's a bad thing because Bathsheba was married and David was married. And beyond that, it was, it was just worse than a normal affair. It was cheating of the worst possible kind because Bathsheba's husband was a young military commander who was a very noble guy. And he was away doing what David should have been doing. I listened to a minister talk about this this last week, watching a message, and here's what he said. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He saw what he shouldn't have seen. He did what he shouldn't have done, and he paid a price he was never meant to pay. That's a great way of thinking about this. The thing got loose in David's life. But you know, here's the thing about all of us. When, Well, I mean, let's just say when we go shopping, we look at price tags, don't we? You know when you're shopping for a suit or a a dress or pants or, or whether you're shopping for a car. You check out what the price is and you decide whether or not you believe you can pay for it or not. And so I think that's what we do when we do the wrong thing because you and I both do the wrong thing from time to times and we know it's wrong. But the deal is we're saying to ourselves, well, I sort of guess there's a price tag with this and I'm assuming that I can pay for it and I'm going to do this and I'm going to enjoy whatever this is and then I'm going to pay the price for it and then I'm going to move on with my life. One of my favorite quotes from Shakespeare is from the tragedy Macbeth. And most of, most of us have a hard time remembering Macbeth. We read it probably when we were in high school. But in Act 1, Scene 7, the main character, Macbeth, who along with his wife was plotting the murder of innocent King Duncan. Macbeth is scared to carry out the murder, and Shakespeare has him say something that is probably one of my, it is one of my favorite of his quotes. He said, if it... If it was done, when twere done. It's a play on the word done because the English word done can mean more than one thing. What Shakespeare is saying is if only it were finished, done, when it was committed, done. In other words, whenever we did the wrong thing, if only that could be the end of it. How many of us have discovered 
like Macbeth, unfortunately, it's not done when it's done. And what we can discover also is the problem is it won't die. One of my favorite movies is Mississippi Burning. And it's a movie about how the civil rights, in the civil rights age and era, there, there was a lot of abusive treatment of African Americans in Mississippi. There were murders that were committed, and the, the local government sort of overlooked it, and, and federal agents came in to deal with it. And one of the federal agents made a statement that I love and I've thought about many times. He said, rattlesnakes don't commit suicide. And guys, that's what you and I need to know about sin in our lives. It isn't going to die a natural death, and it's not going to commit suicide. David is saying to himself, I can handle this. I can pay the price. See, in David's mind, his sin, his sleeping with his next-door neighbor, it's like a pet cat. It's like a kitty cat that he keeps in his closet. He can take it out and play with it. He's got total control of it. Hey, that's what lures us into doing the wrong thing. I'm in control. David could say, I'm king, you know? I'm king. I've got control. I've got the megaphone. And then he said something, I think, that a lot of people who are in affairs, maybe somebody here is in an affair right now, and you find yourself saying the same thing. David was saying, I got my reasons for not telling. She's got her reasons for not telling. I'm in control here, you know? I'm not going to say anything. She's not going to say anything. I'm safe. I'm in control. And then his world blew up. And David realized for the first time he wasn't dealing with a kitty cat. He was, real, he was dealing with a monster. Because Bathsheba, if you'll allow the anachronism, Bathsheba fires off a text to David that said, I'm pregnant. There's some stuff that's not normal this month. I'm pregnant. Now for the first time, David gets a look at the thing. He gets a look at the monster. But it's not very big at this point. David feels like, you know, I can deal with this. Let's just say it's gone from being a kitty cat to a Kansas bobcat. That's not too serious, right? And after all, David has dealt with animals before. You remember he was a shepherd, and he said a lion came out, and he just killed it. And a bear came out to attack a sheep, and he killed it. He dealt with Goliath, a giant, and he killed it. And David's saying, hey, I've dealt with stuff before. But you know what? It's very different in life. Our capacity to deal with things, when you're following God, and you're acting in your zone, and you're doing the right thing, you can accomplish great things. You can be lured into thinking that you can deal with sin just as easily. What David doesn't understand is the power that God has given him to achieve great things is not going to translate to his ability to control life when he's done the wrong thing. Rattlesnakes are not going to commit suicide. But David has said to himself, this is a little, it's a little monster. It requires a little solution. And if you were here last week, please forgive me for being redundant. But David says to himself, I can cover this up. I'm, just, I'm going to get her husband to come home. He's out in the field. He's fighting. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Under the guise of coming in to get a directive from the king, David brings Bathsheba's husband home. And David is thinking to himself, I'm going to give Uriah a couple days off. He's going to go home. He's going to sleep with his wife. Everybody's going to figure this baby was conceived when Uriah came home. It's a little monster. just needs a little solution. But the thing won't die because Uriah is refusing to go home. He's a noble soldier. His brothers in arms are out there in the field, lying on the cold, wet grass, getting ready to go to war. How's he going to get home and take time off when his fellow soldiers, the guys he commands, are out there in the field? He's come to get a directive from the king. He's going to get his dispatch. He's going back to the field. Okay, that monster's a little bigger than I thought it was, David is saying to himself. Guess I'll get him drunk. I'll just get him, I'll get him stone drunk, and he'll lose his inhibitions. He'll go home and sleep with his wife. Uriah gets so drunk, I think he passes out. But still, even 
That drunk, he refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. Even stone drunk, he's more noble than David is at that moment. And David is saying, this monster is bigger than I thought. It just won't die. See, David should have known a verse he, he, he probably heard in Sunday school. Again, if you'll allow the anachronism. He should have remembered a verse from Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, where the Bible says, be sure, be sure, your sin will find you out. It doesn't mean that God will come, it doesn't say God will come chasing you down. It just says the thing that you do, the monster, be sure. It doesn't say that probabilities are not on your side. It says you can be sure your sin will find you out. How many of us have done the wrong thing, thought we had taken care of it, thought we'd covered it up, left it out there, only for it to pop up at the most inopportune time? David should have remembered that. Well, David is saying, this monster is bigger than I thought it was, and I tried to deal with it the easy way, but it's too big a monster to deal with that. I'm going to have to do something else to kill the monster. It's going to require a big solution. Uriah, still drunk, passed out there on the floor, and David begins to write a dispatch for Uriah to carry back with him. And the dispatch goes something like this. Put Uriah in the very front of the battle where the guys who went out were sure to die. This is hand-to-hand combat. They didn't have planes and missiles like we have today. It was all hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword, spear-to-spear. And, of course, this would be the, the advanced group. And you would never put a prime commander in the advanced group. But David said, put Uriah in the very front of the battle. And he gave Uriah his own death message to deliver. Uriah brought it to Joab. It was a stupid command, but Joab knew how to obey an order. He put Uriah in the front of the battle. And sure enough, in that first advance, Uriah was one of the first to die. And David said, I have killed the thing. The thing is over. It's finished. I have killed the monster. And David brings Bathsheba home, marries her, as we'll see in a moment. And he said, I've covered it up. There's a verse that David should have remembered at this point. There's a verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 9, verse 12, where the Bible says, He, that's God, who avenges murder, cares for the helpless. He does not ignore the cries of those who suffer. That's in Psalm 9, verse 12. I'm talking to the greatest church in the world. I don't think there would ever be a new springer who would abuse his wife. I don't think that could happen here. But if it did, and if there's a guy here today and you've got the upper hand because you're physically stronger and you're abusing your wife, sir, I want to tell you something. You may be stronger than she is, but there's somebody who's stronger than you are. And he will not ignore her cries. I, and you say, Mark, this is why I don't come to church. I'm always scared of hearing that. This is the most positive sermon you've ever heard, I think. If you're here and you're abusing your wife, there is a God who hears every cry. I don't think this could ever happen at New Spring. But if there ever was anyone who walked in who was abusing a child, I want you to understand something. God hears the cry of that child, and he will avenge the damage that is done to this child. I don't care if you've been in church all your life. I don't care if you've been to 500 Bible studies. I don't care if you've read the Bible 25 times. Anybody who abuses a child, God is going to be on the other side of that person. He's going to get even. Let, make no mistake about that. If you want to know how Jesus felt about child abusers, all you got to do is read his statement. He said it would be better for someone to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be tossed into the sea than to abuse a child. Just so that you'll know a millstone is not like a little rock. Just, just get a little sense of Jesus' anger toward anyone who would abuse a child. Listen to this. A millstone was four feet wide and one foot thick. Now, if you had a millstone necklace and you're thrown into the water, I promise you, you ain't going to do any swimming. 
That's how Jesus feels about a child abuser. And so David should have heard that. You know, I doubt very seriously that Uriah died quickly. Men in battle in those days didn't die quickly because a lot of times they were wounded by spears or arrows or swords. And my guess is it took him a while to die. Maybe it was minutes. Maybe it was hours. As Uriah laid out there in the field and thought about his wife Bathsheba at home and that he would never see her again. And as, as Uriah poured out his heart, God listened to that. See, David is thinking, I've finished this. I've, I've, I've killed the monster. He should have known that God said he avenges those. You know why David should have known that? David wrote that verse. He's the one who wrote that. He had already written Psalm 912. Of all people, David should have known it. He wrote it. See, that's the thing. For a lot of us who grew up in church, we have this idea that somehow we're advanced because we know what God has to say. Listen, God's not impressed with how much Mark has learned. He's, con he's, he's concerned about how much Mark obeys what he knows. I I've seen people who were Total perpetrators, and yet, you know, they'll say, oh, well, my boy, he knows, the, he knows the Bible from cover to cover. So what? So what? Well, I think this is a good time for us to also look at something else, considering how prolific adultery is. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, never harm or cheat a Christian brother, or you could put sister in there, in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins. God forbid that I should ever do this, but I want you to listen to something for a moment. I know God loves me. I've been his child since I was eight years old, and I invited Christ into my life. And not only that, God has called me into ministry. But if, God forbid, I should ever cheat on Mary Alice and have an affair with another woman, as much as God loves me, God at that moment draws a, lot, a, lot, draws a line in the proverbial sand, and God says, Mark, you're on that side, and I'm on this side, and I'm going to get even for Mary Alice. Oh, in our loose morals day that we could grasp the reality of the Bible. See, that's the thing. People through the years have told me that they're, they're fearful of Satan. It's like, you know, I've had, especially people who were emotionally disturbed sometimes would say, well, Mark, I'm, you know, I hear sounds. I actually had somebody ask me if, if I would come in and bless their house because their house was haunted. They heard door slamming. Guys, Satan doesn't do that kind of crazy stuff. You know what Satan's damage in your life and my life is? It's what he can lure us to do to ourselves. Because what Satan wants to do in your life and my life is to lure us in an action that God can't bless, that God has to deal with. He'll lure us into it, watch us suffer, and laugh as we do what we've done. And that's what happened with David. Well, I need to hustle here this morning. Last weekend, we said the best thing to do in life is that when the thing shows up, when the monster shows up in your life, whatever it is that Satan is going to try to lure, to do to lure you to, to blowing up your life, don't let it in. If it's like to flirt with somebody who's not your wife, if it's like to lie and tell, tell a lie and it has to have another lie to cover it up, or if it's taking a little bit and saying you'll pay it back, whatever it is that Satan uses to lure you into blowing your life up, don't let it in. But there's a question that we need to ask this morning. What do we do when we do let it in? Because I am, and you're, you're going to do that at times. What do we do when we let the monster in to our lives? Work with me for a moment. Let's say that you're driving the streets of Wichita, and it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. 
I have to do that every once in a while. Somebody's in the hospital or some kind of problem with one of our church family. And so I'll get a call. And, and so I'll drive the streets of Wichita. One thing I love about that is that they're empty. Streets are empty. And this has absolutely nothing to do with the story, but like all the lights are green <laughs> or, or red. But anyway, let's just say you're out driving 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and, and by yourself and nobody else in the streets. But all of a sudden, there's a car that pulls up behind you and it's filled with a, a group of thugs. And you think, well, maybe just, you know, we just happen to be on a road at the same time together. And you turn, they turn. You turn again, they turn again. You speed up, they speed up. You slow down, they slow down. No doubt about it. You're being stalked. And it's the middle of the night. Now, let me give you a couple of choices, and you tell me which is the better of the two. The first choice is you think to yourself, I'm only about three or four blocks from a police station. I know there's a police station. And if they're chasing me, I'm going to let them chase me right to the police station. And I'm going to get there and I'm going to hop the curb and lay on the horn. Or let's just say you have another idea and say, okay, I'm being stalked by thugs. So maybe the best thing to do is just to drive out in the country and go to as far away as I can from the city to some secluded back Kansas road. Help me. You say, Mark, that's a no-brainer. The smart thing to do is to go to the police station and lay on the horn because no, thief, no criminal in his right mind would follow you into a police no, Of course, not all criminals are in their right minds, right? <laughs> Anybody besides me like to read the stupid criminal stories? I, one of my, my favorites, my favorite happened right here in Wichita. We don't make the national media very much, but this criminal was so stupid, we actually made the national media. I, I, I read this out of the Huffington Post. It said a man and a woman reported to police that robbers stole their marijuana. <laughs> and now they're facing charges themselves. I have a weird sense of humor and a strange imagination. I never have heard that 911 call, but I, I can kind of imagine how it went down, can't you? 911, dispatcher, how can I help you? Man, we just had some dudes break into our house. They stole everything. Would they steal, sir? They stole our weed, man. <laughs> Excuse me? They stole our weed. <laughs> you mean like, like marijuana? Yeah, man, stole our weed. How much did they get? They got a lot, man. We have a business here. I mean, they got our whole inventory. <laughs> Can't you, just, <laughs> can't you just hear that dispatcher say, sir, just stay right where you are. Officers, <laughs> officers are on the way. <laughs> but you and I know no criminal in his right mind would follow you to the police station. Why is it, starting with me, why is it when we take a few steps in the wrong direction and we let the monster in our lives, why do we then go to a secluded, isolated spot and let it tear us to shreds? Why don't we go to God instead and say, God, I screwed up. I let it in. David could have done that, but he didn't. And one thing turned into another thing, and before long, he had a whole flock of monsters after him. Let me ask you a question. Let's just take back to the moment where David gets the message from Bathsheba that says, I'm pregnant. Now, David, at that moment, should have known, I've done a terrible thing. 
I've slept with another man's wife. And not only did I sleep with another man's wife, I fathered a child by her. What should David have done at that moment? He should have gone straight to the police station, jumped the curb, laid on the horn, and said, God, I did a terrible thing, and I'm turning myself in. What's the worst thing that could have happened to him? You say, Mark, I've read the Old Testament. He could have been stoned to death. Some things are worse than dying. But I don't think he would have been. Or you could have said, well, Mark, I think he would have lost his job. He wouldn't have been king anymore. That's true, but you know there are worse things. Listen to me, please, because every once in a while, somebody has to confess something that could actually cause them to lose their job. But there are worse things in life than losing your job. But I don't think he would have. Do you know the worst thing that could really have happened to David? He'd have been embarrassed. It would have been embarrassing to man up and say, I did the wrong thing. I slept with another man's wife. Sure, it would have been embarrassing after all. He's the king. He's the sweet singer of Israel. He's the leader of the armies. To sleep with a young war bride, that was a horrible thing to do. But let me just tell you about some things that would have happened if David had just gone to the police station instead of going out into seclusion. First of all, Uriah would still have been alive, and he wouldn't have murdered an innocent man. The second thing that would have happened is it would have been a statement to his people. Sure, it would be embarrassing for a leader to stand before his nation and say, I did a horrible thing. But you know what? That would have been an important moment in the life of that nation because they would have said, you know what? Our king is confronting what he's done wrong. We need to confront what we've done wrong. Guys, you know I'm not political because I've got bigger things to be concerned about. But I can tell you in watching the last hundred years of American history, one of the worst things that's happened to us is our leaders have done wrong things and they're not held accountable for the things that they've done. And, and if they would just own up and come and say, hey, I did a wrong thing... If they, would just, if they would just say, I've done a wrong thing, we would forgive them. I mean, you know, we, we've seen that when leaders will come up and take responsibility. Our nation rallies around that leader. But instead, we've watched as leaders in both parties have done the wrong thing and said, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. And each time that happens, it's like our, our country drops another level morally. Well, let me give you the big, a big one for all you parents and grandparents and people who will be parents someday. It would have been a powerful teaching moment to his kids if David had showed up and said, I did an awful thing, and now I'm ready to take responsibility. Because here's the thing, moms and dads, grandparents, are you listening to me, future parents? When you are going to do wrong things sometimes, and nobody's going to spot it better than your kids. How many of you have kids who have discovered that? You do something wrong, your kids are real quick to pick that up. Now, here's the thing. Whatever you do at that moment will be a teaching moment. And if you say, well, hey, I didn't do anything wrong, and I had a reason for doing something wrong, it's a teaching moment because basically you've told your kids to act out and then be in denial about it, and then when they get confronted to give you the reason why they did it. See, it was a teaching moment for David because instead of manning up and saying I did something wrong, he taught his kids two things, and they learned it well, as we'll see next week. First thing he, he taught them was, if you see something you want, just take it. He saw his naked next-door neighbor. He just took her. Second thing he taught him is if there's anybody in the way, just do whatever it takes to get them out of the way. Your eyes in the way, whack them. Oh, they learned that lesson very well. Because see, one of his kids, Amnon, he's learning from daddy. If you see what you want, just take it. Well, his half-sister is really attractive, so he just rapes her. He sees what he wants, he takes it. Her full brother thinks that that brother that raped his sister is in the way, so he kills him. One of David's sons is going to kill another one. He's going, to, he's going to have a son that's going to decide he wants the kingdom. He sees his daddy's kingdom. He just decides to take it. And the person who's in the way is David. And he's going to just get him out of the way. 
See, David taught his kids well. Oh, moms and dads, please listen to me for a moment. One of the greatest teaching moments that you'll ever have is when you do something wrong and your kids know you've done it. How many guys here right now? You don't have to raise your hand, please. But you, you just say something you shouldn't say to your wife. You're just really totally out of line. I wonder this. Can you be man enough? Um, listen to me, please. Can you be man enough to sit down with your son and say to him, you know, what dad did was really out of line, and I had no reason to do that, and I'm ashamed of myself. In a moment of anger, I said something to your mother that was outrageous, and I've asked her for her forgiveness, and I want to ask you for your forgiveness, son. And son, listen to me, please. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a man of God, and so I'm going to ask you, would you pray for me that God will help me to overcome the anger issues in my life? I promise you, you just taught that kid something that will transform his life. Mom, the next time you're calling in and you just don't want to go to work one day and you're calling in and you're spinning this web about how sick you are and you look and your teenage daughter knows that there's not a thing in the world wrong with you, you just want to go shopping. <laughs> one of the best things you can do is sit down with your daughter and say, baby, I told a lie. That is what I did. I told a lie. And sometimes when I get under pressure, I'm tempted to say something that isn't true, but I want to grow. Would you please pray for your mother that I will have the courage to tell the truth? That becomes a powerful teaching moment. Only God knows the transformation that would happen in our families if the people here, the parents, would man up and woman up and say to their kids, I did the wrong thing, and not I did it because. Hey, it's a broken world. There's always going to be a because. The wrong thing is always the wrong thing. And that's what David could have done, but he didn't do it. David decided to go out into isolation and to do a cover-up. And we read about it last week. In verse 27, it's the verse we get the thing from. David, this is after he killed Uriah. He had Bathsheba brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David did displeased the Lord. New Spring tends to be a young church, so a lot of you that have heard maybe about Richard Nixon in Watergate, you know how it is when you learn about history, it's like it happened in a short time. But if, for those of you who were old-timers, and you were, I was in high school at the time, for all of you who were contemporaneous with Nixon, you know something. That in between the break-in becoming, the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, in between the break-in becoming a national story and Nixon resigning in disgrace in office, do you remember what happened? In November of 1972, in between those events, Richard Nixon won a landslide election. If memory serves correct, he took 42 states. What do you think he thought that night when he won the election? I've covered this up. But as the Bible says, the monster has a way of showing back up at our doorstep. Even when we think it's dead, it's not dead. And that's how it happened with David. But i got to rush real fast through this. Why didn't David go to the police station? When Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant, why didn't David just go to God and say, okay, God, I did the wrong thing? Let me give you three reasons. I'm not going to spend any time with the first one because I think we've already covered it. He was afraid of the circumstances. He was afraid of what was going to happen. This is one of the most important things I'm going to say today. Guilt. I'm talking to somebody right now. You're out in isolation. You're being shredded by the thing, but you've got guilt in your life. And here's the weird thing. You feel better about yourself because you feel guilty. Would you listen to me, please, for a moment? When I tell you guilt is absolutely worthless, God doesn't want you to feel guilty. It could be that you came from toxic religion. You're saying, Mark, that's an epiphany for me. I thought God was all about guilt. No, guilt's worthless. Guilt leads nowhere. In fact, if anything, guilt can actually keep us 
from coming to God. Let me show you what I mean. In Psalm 38, David, this is before he gets right with God, and he still feels, he feels really guilty. Let's read it. I we're going to learn a lot right here about guilt. He said, oh, Lord, don't discipline me in your rage. Your arrows have struck deep, and your blows are crushing me. My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. I am exhausted, verse 8, and completely crushed. I am on the verge of collapse. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why guilt gets in the way of our dealing with the monster. First of all, there's some sort of human quotient inside of us that feels that guilt must be good for us. I feel badly about what I did, so therefore I really don't need to come forward and own up to what I've done because somehow the guilt that I feel is a cathartic punishment. Perhaps if I feel badly enough, God will have sympathy on me and I really won't have to man up or woman up and deal with what I've done because I'm just suffering over here in silence. That's the first thing. But in the second thing, notice how that we can go from being perpetrator to victim from real fast when it comes to guilt. David is saying, it's a burden too heavy to bear. I'm exhausted and completely crushed. I'm on the verge of collapse. Are you kidding me? Uriah is dead. And David is over here whining about how badly he feels about what he's done. It's like I'm just, I'm just a victim here. I'm a victim of my own guilt. The third reason, and I know this is present in my life, the third reason why David didn't own up to what he did, remember the first one, he's afraid of the circumstances, the second one is guilt, the third reason is rationalization. And as I said a few moments ago, in a broken world, there will always be a because. You can always say, I did the wrong thing because. There will always be something you can attach to. Is in my life. And so sometimes when I do something wrong or I let the thing into my life, I can rationalize and say, well, you know, I was under these difficult circumstances. I had all this pressure and I was so busy and, and that person did something that she or he shouldn't have done. Could I ask you a question? The reason I know to ask this question is this has happened in my life before. Have you ever done something was really wrong and you rationalized it, which I'm sure David did. You know, he could have said, well, you know, soldiers die. Uriah died. And the thing about Bathsheba, he was singing his old Mindy, he was singing the, his own version of the old Mindy McCready song, Kings Do It All the Time. And, you know, um, have you ever had a moment where all of a sudden you come face to face with what you've done wrong and the awfulness of it hits you? I've been there. I've had that epiphany where I thought, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I hurt that person that way. David had such a moment. I mean, after all, he's covered it up. He's killed the monster, right? It's dead. Uriah's dead. He's married Bathsheba. Everybody's saying, what a great king we have. Our king is so noble. He married the young war bride. Isn't he great? Oh, they're going to have a baby, you know? David is in his palace working, and I think David feels like he has no problems. It's all covered up. The only one person who could give him trouble is his pastor, because his pastor, Nathan, is in contact with God. So I think David is not in any hurry to get with Nathan, although they used to be really close. One day, David is at the palace doing his work. A message came to him and said, sir, your pastor, Pastor Nathan is here. He wants to talk to you. David's saying, uh-oh. He's going to come in here, and he's going to talk to me about Bathsheba. So anyway, Nathan walks in. And says, David, you're doing a great 
Pastor Nathan, it's always good to see you. You know, David, I haven't seen you in church in a while. It's been weeks. And David's saying, oh, you know how it is, man. I'm so busy right now. I've got lots of walking around to do on top of my palace, naps to take, stuff like that. And I've been, <laughs> I've been really, hey, why is it that when we let the thing chase us to a secluded place, it's awkward to be in church? And so Nathan is saying, David, I, I need to talk to you about something. And David's thinking, uh-oh, oh, here it comes. Nathan's saying, you know, there, there's, a, there's something that played out out in the country between a couple of farmers, and there's some spiritual bearings, but it's got legal ramifications, so I'd like for you to coach me up. And David's like, oh, boy, thank you, God. I don't have to deal with that thing. And, and so Nathan starts telling the story. He said, a couple of guys that had places out in the country. One guy had a huge spread. It was like he had an industry, and his industry was sheep. He had thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep, big flocks, big herds. And there's a guy across the street. He didn't have anything, really. He, he just had one little lamb, and, and it wasn't for slaughter, and it wasn't for shearing or anything. It was just a pet. You know, David, you should see it, man. The kids play with the lamb. They put little red ribbons on its neck, you know, and, and they let him eat off their plate and drink out of their cup. And, you know, they hold him in their lap. And, and David, it's just the cutest thing you ever saw in your life. You ought to see it. But the other day, David, something happened. I need you to kind of coach me up on what to do about it. He said, uh, the rich guy across the street, he had a visitor come see him. And he wanted to make a lamb chop dinner for him. And instead of taking one of the lambs from his thousands, he went across the street and he took the poor man's lamb, the little pet lamb, and he slaughtered it for dinner. David, what do you think should be done about that? About this time, David's blood pressure is hitting about 240 over 120. It's gone from high to morbid, and David is furious. He jumps off the throne. And he's not rational. How do I know he's not rational? He said, that man is going to die. He's going to die. And then he said he's going to pay. How do you pay after you're dead? But David's not thinking straight. He's irrational. He's saying, that man is going to die. And then we're going to make him pay. And after we've made him pay everything he thinks he should pay, then we're going to make him pay a second time. And after he finishes paying the second time, we're going to make him pay a third time. And after we make him pay a third time, we're going to make him pay a fourth time. He's going to be dead, and then we're going to make him pay and pay and pay and pay. And about that time, Nathan looked at David and said, David, you're the man. You're the man. Isn't it strange? We can see other people's sin so clearly and not see ours so well. I want to pick up the story right there. It says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. God speaking to David. Nathan's telling him. I anointed you king over Israel. In other words, David, I blessed you. How many of us have done crazy things after God has been so good to us? I anointed you king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. And if all this had been too, God, just listen to God. God is saying, David, if all the things I gave you had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And now God's getting down to brass tacks. God said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Let's just stop this business, David, about soldiers dying. God said, the way I look at it, you murdered him. Now, therefore, this is going to be important to us next week. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. What God was saying to David is this, David. 
David, the theme refuses to die, and it's loose. And worst of all, David, the theme is loose in your house. The thing is loose in your family. Well, after all that, David finally says, yeah, I'm guilty. So I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but you've caused God's enemies to celebrate this. And real quickly here as I finish up, let's just say this. David finally handled it, but he handled it very poorly. Now, listen, guys, I'm so motivated to bring this series to you for this reason. Let's not let that happen to us. We're going to let the thing in from time to time. What do you do when you let the thing in? Because it's not going to commit suicide. It's not going to die on its own. Because some of you know already, you got a habit in your life, and you thought it was a, it was a little pet you could play with, but now it's loose, and you're learning it. It's not going to commit suicide. It's not going to die. What do you do when you've let the thing in? Here's number one. Let it chase you right to God. If you're out and you're alone and all of a sudden the thing gets in after you and you start dealing with something in your life, you go straight to the police station and go to God. Why? Because here's the thing. If you go to God, he will have the upper hand in what's going on in your life. If you go out to a secluded, isolated place, it will have the upper hand. And listen to how good God is if you will come to him. The Bible says you'll never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them. Give them up. Then God will show mercy to you. I didn't say this. It's been said for couple thousand years by ministers. But it's true. If you hide your sins, God will uncover them. If you will uncover your sins to God, he will cover them. And I've tried to get you to love Joel 2.13 and 2.14. And if I haven't taught you to love it yet, could I try one more time? The Bible says, return to the Lord your God. If you're being chased by the thing, then come back. Come come to God. For he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. This is one of my favorite lines in the Bible because how many have been brought up in religion and we got the idea that God was just looking for a chance to punish us? Listen to this line. He is eager to relent and not punish. God doesn't want to punish you. he's, He's so eager to relent. Look at this. The Bible says, who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. In other words, if you've let the thing get after you and you let it chase you right to God, who knows? Maybe God will even give you a blessing for showing up to him instead of the trouble that we deserve by doing the wrong thing. You see why I love that scripture? The second thing is, timeliness matters. If you're being chased by the thing today and you've let something into your life and it's shredding you, Please don't say, well, I'll deal with this down the road. I started to make this the opening scripture. I almost wish I had. Jesus said this in the gospel, settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Because he goes on to say, if you decide to run this thing out, you may go to prison. You won't get out till you've paid the last, last penny. Why do people settle? Other than nuisance factor, why, why, why do people settle in court? They settle because they've got exposure. And they're saying, I want to end this thing. And so what God is saying is, look, if you got the thing chasing you, come to God right now and settle. Settle out of court. Settle now. The third one is the biggest of all, and it's this. Jesus is bigger than any monster that is chasing you. I don't know what your thing is. It could be you're hooked on pornography. It's a big thing today. Man, even nations are getting concerned about this. I read something about Great Britain today. It's just pandemic. could be that you're hooked on porn and you can't get loose. And it's turning your normal 
sexual, uh, healthy sexual feelings into looking at the opposite sex as that person is just a thing. And now that's chasing you. But the good news is Jesus is more powerful than that. Or it could be substance abuse. Jesus is more powerful than drugs. He's more powerful than alcohol. It could be that you got an affair going and you're sleeping with somebody or you're close to sleeping with somebody who's not your mate and is chasing you. But Jesus is more powerful than anything you've ever done wrong. In the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about Satan, the accuser, and it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Listen, if you will come to God today, it doesn't matter what you've done. You may have done the most horrible things. You may have actually been an abuser. But if you will come to God today and you will own up to that, what you will discover is that the blood of Jesus Christ can wash any sin away. If you will come to the police station, hop the curb, and lay on the horn, Jesus will come out. And I promise you, he's more powerful than anything in your life. And he can wash your sin away, and he can take it away forever, and the damage will be stopped. Listen. This is what the prodigal son discovered. He let, it, he let the thing chase him back to the father's house. The thief who died with Jesus let it chase him to the cross. Whatever the monster is that's chasing you today. Oh, I don't even know who I'm talking to. But I'm talking to somebody here today, and you've let the monster chase you into isolation. And you're afraid to come clean with what you've done. But the problem is you've done the worst possible thing because now in isolation, you know, you put on a good face and you try to make everybody else think you're okay. But you take, that, you take that monster back to isolation, and it shreds you. And you can't sleep at night because it claws you in the night. When you wake up in the morning, it claws you again. Hey, listen, let it chase you to Jesus. Deal with it once and for all. Bring it to him. He will forgive you. He will give you mercy. He will help you have pardon and forgiveness, and you'll go on and be able to live your life. Thanks for being here this morning. I'll see you next weekend.